Hey everyone, and welcome to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by Material Security, and a little bit later on, we'll be hearing from one of Material's friends, uh, Courtney Healy, who is the Senior Manager of Insider Threat at Coinbase. And uh, she's joining us in her personal capacity to talk about why addressing the insider threat takes more than just rolling out a DLP program. So do stick around for that one. But first up, of course, it is time for a check of the week's security news with Adam Boileau. And Adam, uh, over the last couple of months, we've been following these, you know, huge intrusions into Iranian targets, like hack and leak operations targeting the Iranian president's office and whatnot. And, uh, you know, we've sort of thought that this was the the opposition uh, political party, MEK, which these days is, is based largely in Albania. Uh, the Albanian police have just raided the MEK compound in Albania. Uh, a bunch of people have been injured. Uh, it looks like one person may have died uh, during this raid, and the purpose of the raid was to seize uh, evidence of these of these uh, you know cyber incidents um, that have been targeting the Iranian government. Yeah, the MEK is accused of running a, a quote, like, hacker centre uh, based in one of these camps, uh, which was supposedly carrying out these operations uh, inside Iran, which, you know, certainly sounds believable. And now we've seen, you know, the Albanian police seize a bunch of computers and systems uh, from this hacker centre, and you know, perhaps more information uh, will come out from that. You now, we've talked a bit about how successful some of these campaigns against Iranian institutions have been. So uh, the you know it's not surprising that the Albanians are feeling some of the pressure uh, from you know, allegedly hosting the place where this activity well, comes from. Yeah, no. I mean you can understand why the MEK is doing what it's doing, but expecting the Albanians not to push back on it, given that the MEK exists in Albania, uh, kind of at the discretion of the Albanian government, right? Like you, and and one of the conditions that they're there of them being there is that they don't do stuff like this. Yeah, it certainly does seem at odds with the you know, description of the camps as you know for humanitarian purposes, like a place for them to have some refuge. But then you know attacking onwards into another country, and especially when we've seen you know retaliatory attacks against Albanian institutions you know, presumably as a result of some of this activity. Like, you can see why it has become a bit contentious for them. Yeah, so what's really weird is we've got, like, this cyber conflict playing out between an opposition party in exile based in Albania and Iran, and Iran then attacking the Albanian government. Uh, you know, I mean, that's it sounds, sounds pretty amazing when you just say it out loud, right? <laughs> yeah, like, what a world we've arrived at where that's going on. But, uh, yeah, you can absolutely see why the uh, Albanian you know, authorities are interested in cracking down this and trying to restore some order to, you know, their circumstances and relationship with Iran. I mean, it's just been really obvious that these intrusions were being done by the MEK because the first time you would ever hear anything about them would be on the MEK's website. Yeah, I think they had like a, like a telegram channel that's been announcing a bunch of these attacks and, uh, you know, some coordination and so on and so forth. So, yeah, a, bit, yeah, a little bit on the nose, I think, for the Albanians. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how they handle this legally, right? Because are they, they're they not obviously not going to extradite them to Iran, Clearly but are they not. going to charge them with computer crimes, <laughs> uh, you know, targeting Iran that, you know, the, the victim isn't even in Albania? I, I, it's just such a weird situation. Yeah, and it may just be a case of go, you know, shake them down, make sure everyone understands where their place is, and then it all gets kind of like quietly dealt with without it being turned well, into... Well, you know. the MEK don't strike me as the type of people who would respond to a stern talking to you know like they're not <laughs> fluffy bunnies based yeah, yeah, on re- doing a little bit of reading about the background yes. i don't know all that much about them but 
I think it's fair to say that they're not a bunch of fluffy bunnies who you can just say, hey, stop that, and they will. <laughs> yes, and I think that, you know, Albania also, like, there's just there's so much relationship between all of the parties involved that, yeah, it's just a thorny, thorny mess. Yeah, yeah. I think that is the way, that is the word that comes to mind, is the whole thing's a big mess. Uh, speaking of big messes, uh, Microsoft has finally admitted that it was DDoSed successfully uh, by... The, the group calling itself Anonymous Sudan, uh, which is, you know, as we all know, a front for pro-Russian activities. Uh, Catalan Kimpanu, who works with us, uh, did a pretty fierce write-up on this, actually, um, <laughs> where he gave Microsoft and Russia uh, both barrels. But Catalan's main point in his write-up is that you shouldn't be able to take down like Azure services this way, and I think it's a, I think it's a well made point. It absolutely is. Like I mean, some of the techniques they are using are not you know traditional volumetric DDoS, but they are techniques that have been around for a long time. Like for example, the Slow Loris attack, where you uh, like request a resource and then don't acknowledge the reply, thus holding the connection open. Like that's a technique that's been used for a long time, and that Azure is vulnerable to that type of attack does seem a little strange. Well, and hitting them with like incomplete HTTPS handshakes as well, like you would think Microsoft should be able to mitigate this. I mean, mean, clearly they they have gone back and added some mitigations for it. And, you know, I suppose I have some sympathy for how fast and loose cloud operators have to move to kind of keep up with the pace of everything. Because, like, you know, it's, it's hard as an end user keeping up with the pace of development in cloud environments, let alone building them. So, like, I have a little bit of sympathy, but this is Azure we're talking about. It's not like this is some, you know, third-tier rubbish cloud service provider. Like, this is where half the Western world hosts its stuff. It needs to be able to survive someone, you know, like not using their cache servers or whatever else, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the good side, I guess, is that it was quickly mitigated, right? Yes. But it is embarrassing that they needed to roll out mitigations to to defeat these attacks. But I just, look, I just think Catalan's done a terrific job with his write-up. I mean, he basically calls Microsoft a bunch of idiots. He calls... Russians, a bunch of neo-fascist genocidal maniacs, and says that he needs to eat his words from his June 7 edition uh, when he thought there was no way some media-whoring hacktivist posers would be able to down official Microsoft services (laughs) because they could barely keep the websites of a Nordic airline down for more than 10 minutes. (laughs) Savage. (laughs) Yes, some some word-eating required there, Catalan, but uh, (laughs) not as much as Microsoft. you know, he's right, which is, is like, how would you think that the same people who couldn't keep a Nordic airline down for 10 minutes were the ones behind a DDoS against Microsoft, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I don't blame you for making that mistake, buddy, is what I'm saying. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. And, you know, on the other hand, like, I also feel like for Anonymous Sudan, going and picking a fight with Microsoft, like, probably also not the world's best move. You know, you can, you can deny the service a bunch of stuff, and they have, but going after Microsoft does seem to be asking for trouble. Well, how? I don't get that. You said that to me before we got recording, but I don't see how it's really going to cause them much drama considering they're just going to keep DDoSing people. They're based in Russia. It's not like they're going to get arrested, you know? So why why is this a bad thing? Like, I I don't understand how this could be... You know, I would understand that if they went off and started dropping wipers on US critical infrastructure, that it could be a bad move for them. But, you know, DDoSing Azure, I don't know. No, I mean, it just Azure is very important to a lot of things, and uh, you know, I, I yeah, but if you're I was blaming a- them for this instead of Microsoft. This wasn't. This was Microsoft's incompetence that let this happen. <laughs> I know. I guess yeah. My instinct would be if I were a hacker crew, then I would attempt to 
keep a slightly lower profile, but once again, they they can they are just a Russian front. They can do what they please. Well, and their whole job is to have profile, right? Yes. Like the whole point of them doing what they do is to do this. And you know what's crazy is like Microsoft put out its admission on like a Friday afternoon on this. It's so like everything about this is so Microsoft, which is <laughs> no, no, nothing, nothing <laughs> like that happened. And then, oh, maybe it happened a little bit. And then it's like, yeah, it, it happened. It's like, you know, we saw similar things when they had source code pinched by lapses and then, yeah. you know, they got owned in the, in the uh, solar wind stuff. And first they were like, oh, you know, tiny we got a tiny bit owned but no i think they actually got quite a lot owned. <laughs> just very i don't yeah. know man it's so funny like microsoft is better even now is better than it was you know 20 years ago but like some of these old habits just obviously yeah. die hard right yeah maybe those of us with with you know have been doing this for a long time and have the long memory is are still comparing to you know the microsoft the borders ActiveX and ie6 and all of yeah. the other terrible things that happened 20 years ago but yeah the world has definitely changed and they need to do better than this yeah, they do. Now, look, you know, speaking of the Russia-Ukraine hacktivist cyber war, it's just it's just depressingly <laughs> petty. You know, like one one interesting one you and I spoke about it last week was when some Ukrainians wiped routers, right? At a at a Russian telco that provides services to like the the Russian central bank, right? And this caused some major drama. In response, like Anonymous Sudan and Killnet working together, wink, wink, um, <laughs> managed to like DDoS the website of the European Investment Bank. Well, like, I yeah, mean, you showed them. <laughs> you showed them, buddy. <laughs> slow clap yeah. uh, for Anonymous Sudan and, and, and Killnet. And, you know, we got another story here about like Russian-speaking gamers being directed to fake gaming websites to have like, what is it, like wipers and stuff dropped like on them? Fake just- WannaCry, like ransomware that claims to be WannaCry 3 but is not. It's just some open source uh, <laughs> open source brand somewhere that's been rebranded. So, yeah, this is not the cyber war we were promised. <laughs> no, exactly. We were promised, you know, kinetic effects and power stations going boom and melting down steel plants. We were promised Reaper drones going going rogue. You know, <laughs> this is what Hollywood promised us, and instead, we get fake WannaCry three attacks on Russian speaking gamers. <laughs> It is a little underwhelming, isn't it, when you put it like that? Yeah. It is. It is. Now, look, let's move on, obviously, to the to the, the two big stories of the week. And um, I guess they're the two big stories of the month, though. <laughs> the, um, the Klopp stuff, right? So there's the Move It stuff, and that's just continuing. Like, now that we're in the harvest season, as we, as we spoke about last week, it is harvest season. But it's just turned into this... Absolutely huge, big deal, and there's also some interesting stuff to talk about on the on the Barracuda campaign, right? But uh, first up, let's let's talk about the Move It stuff. The U.S. government has put a ten million dollar bounty uh, on Klopp. Don't know how much that's going to help when they're pretty obviously based in Russia. Um, I mean, who knows? Maybe there's a couple of members or contractors or affiliates, or I don't even know how they structure their operations. I mean, maybe they're going to see something out of this. But uh, what's interesting to me about this ten million dollars is it's a recognition. That a group of criminals just targeting vulnerabilities in file transfer applications is worthy of a $10 million government bounty. It's just, you know, it's depressing (laughs) that you need to put a reward out for people doing something so dumb. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. And, you know, the 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 Klopp's path through this process has just been kind of pretty well worn over the last few years. And there is a recognition that their approach has worked pretty well for them, that they're now staring down the barrel of a, you know, of a bounty like that, of being, you know, most wanted, etc. Um, but yeah, they, uh, they have been very effective and, you know, I don't got to hand it to them, but kind of do got to hand it to them a little bit. Like, you know, it's, 
they are doing what they have chosen to do very well. <laughs> yeah, and it's blown up in the mainstream media in the United States. Like there's clips, I'll link through to one uh, from CBS in this week's show notes if people want to go have a look. But it's like, oh my God, you know, the biggest uh, the biggest breach in recent history. I love, I love that caveat there because they make it sound like it's historic, <laughs> but say in recent history. Like, but, you know, since, they're pointing since out that, last month. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, marquee names are getting taken down with this. Like a lot of US government... Uh, I think PwC is caught up in this and, uh, you know, just a bunch, a bunch of orgs, like, which I guess isn't surprising to us, but certainly is surprising to the average uh, to the average person. Yeah, and especially when it's, you know, Department of Agriculture, Department of Energy, the Office of Personnel Management, like, these are names that, you know, in the US are, are big deals. So you can kind of see why there's getting, getting a bit of hype, but... Uh, you know, it is also funny seeing it you know, reported like that uh, on a major, you know, major TV news. Yeah, yeah, and uh, meanwhile, there's another bug in Move It, like a third. Yeah, yeah. Is this one been? <laughs> this one's been found by like someone with good intentions, though. Right? I, I, yeah, I think someone has been reviewing the code and has found another, but it does not bode well for the quality of that piece of software. And you know, if there's three remote code execs in it, what's the chances that there's four, five, and six? You know, pretty reasonable. So, yeah, if you're one of the unfortunate people who are running it, then. You know, it's probably going to be quite a long year. Now, look, I, I mentioned earlier that the uh, you know the Barracuda campaign. Oh, uh, that's so good. Well, this is the <laughs> thing, right? Like, so we spoke about it last week. I can't remember if it had been attributed to China already. I think it had. I think we were, um, we, it was pretty clear that it looked nation statey, and obviously, you know, the China tie-up I think was looking strong, but yeah, it certainly firmed up this week. Yeah, well, I mean, have a look. We've, we'll link through to it, but there's a great write-up from Mandian. Yeah, and. Like, it's amazing what happened here, right? Because it's, yeah, it's definitely a, a Chinese, like they've assessed with high confidence that it's a, a Chinese government espionage operation. Uh, they call it a UNC 4841. That's how they've, uh, they've uh, attributed this thing. And what's incredible here is that when Barracuda became aware of this happening uh, on May 19, they started pushing out patches on May 21. And in response to that, the threat actor accelerated its activities, right? So it, it dropped different malware, started evading the patches, and then just massively accelerated its its targeting. And it looks like they just went absolutely feral with this thing, hitting targets in something like 16 countries. A third of the successful um, uh, compromises here were government. And, you know, they were using compromised Barracuda appliances to hit other Barracuda appliances. And they just, they kind of went huge. And it reminds me a little bit of the, the exchange operation in that they just have gone absolutely big and broad with this. But wow, you know, like as we were joking about, like you don't got to hand it to them. I mean, (laughs) anyway, it just looks like it's a threat actor who really knows what they're doing and doesn't really care about getting caught identified, whatever. They just want to get as many shells on as many boxes as possible. They, they even did lateral movement into a small number of these networks, but mostly what they were doing is they were just like exfilling mail and whatever. Yeah, I think when we saw Barracuda come out with that advice saying, okay, now everyone needs to just like brick the appliances and get a fresh one, you know, that certainly felt like either they had found through their investigation, you know, another level of backdooring, but reading the story, it feels like that was a response to Barracuda is starting to react, and they Barracuda retained Mandian directly by the look of it, uh, and they started investigating these things globally. Mandian says in their write up that they were receiving, you know, telemetry from Barracuda's systems overall, you know, globally to be able to try and identify what was going on, and so that movement to then go, you know, backdoor up into the BIOS or the hardware may have come as part of that kind of ongoing skirmish, um, and that's certainly 
speaks to an actor that is not afraid um, yeah. and not afraid to do whatever it needs to do to get on with its job, but also just doesn't care about the response process and the feedback and the you know discussions in public and so on. So, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty serious biz operation and, and Mandiant breaks down a bunch of the interesting details and gubbins of how that actually works inside the appliances in their write-up for anyone who's interested. Yeah, I mean, it's it's real, like, it's it's proper Hollywood plot hacking, this one. Cat and mouse. Yes. You yeah, know? Yeah. But um, I will say that I've heard through, uh, you know, a source that this is actually a big deal um, as far as governments, the affected governments are concerned. Like, this is actually being brought to the attention of serious people. And there's probably going to be some – you would think there's going to be some sort of response here. But, uh, you know, my colleague, our colleague, uh, Tom Uren, is working on analysing this for this week's Seriously Risky Business newsletter because, you know, the, you can sanction and indict these threat actors – but it doesn't seem to disincentivize them, right? So what is the correct response? Yeah, well, and we've certainly seen some of these issues, you know, when there's been intrusion into government systems. I'm reminded of the OPM hack a few years back. You know, it does spiral up into being a thing that ends up being talked about between the governments and... Yeah, but in the case of OBM, that was valid targeting and it was a single organisation. When you look at these exchange hacks and this Barracuda thing, they're hitting hundreds, thousands of gateways, right? Like that's, it's a different, it's a different thing. Yeah, but I guess like, you know, in terms of the response options available, you know, when you've got, you know, potentially a proportional hack like OPM, you know, then we've had some degree of of diplomatic kind of conversations about it. But what do you do when it's this broad uh, and you know, in this case, this effective. It's, yeah, so I don't know what I don't, I don't know what conversation would look like. Uh, no, but this might tie in nicely with the next story we're going to look at. And Martin Matashak has written this one up for the record. The Department of Justice in the United States is spinning up a new section of its National Security Division, which is going to focus on prosecuting malicious foreign cyber activity and uh, also disrupting it. Now, this I find very very interesting, right? So I can understand the FBI doing disruption to ransomware crews and whatever, because, you know, you can sort of squint and say, well, yeah, yeah, that's a law enforcement activity and doing disruption when you can't get the arrests. Yeah, fair enough. But then they went and did the big disruption against the snake malware, which was FSB malware that wasn't even really deployed all that much in the United States, right? And of course, the FBI sits under the DOJ. So we got this situation where DOJ is now taking on a bunch of the responsibility for disrupting like foreign APTs, which I, I got to, I did not see coming. I mean, I would have thought that would be more in, you know, uh, Cyber Command or NSA's wheelhouse. Uh, but hey, I'll take it. It's fine, right? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. more hounds being released, it's good news. Yeah, exactly. Whose hounds they are, perhaps less important than the fact that they are hounds, nevertheless. Um, it seems like part of the conversation seems to be about having the prosecutor prosecutorial kind of support as well from inside DOJ to match the level of seriousness of the of the amount of work that, they have to do. That part I get, right? So to put together the indictments, right, to target yeah, foreign yeah. APT operators, the part that I was surprised by is they're talking about doing disruption as well. Yeah, so I'm like, I guess I'm not 100% clear where the delineations of responsibility are, but... Like well, I don't vo- think they are either, right? Which <laughs> well, is kind yeah. of the point. <laughs> but, I mean, more of it, clearly useful, and, you know, the amount of work they must get from the FBI to support the various ongoing prosecutions and investigations, you know, clearly they needed some more resource, but, yeah, exactly whose bailiwick is what, I am still unclear about, as, you know, perhaps they are too, I don't know. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, FBI seems to have been doing a pretty bang up job lately. I mean, obviously there would be wins coming out of Cyber Command and NSA that just no one knows about. But when you look at the the stuff that the FBI has publicly done, I mean, you look at the Hive ransomware uh, uh, takedown, that was pretty spectacular. You look at the snake malware uh, stuff, also pretty spectacular. So, you know, I don't know, maybe this is just about applying, uh, you know, adding some executives where the FBI has has demonstrated a capability. So, yeah, I mean, in the end, however the US government decides to slice up the responsibility, you know, it's still got a lot of work to do and is getting a lot of work done. So good for them. Now, the EU has said that Huawei and ZTE are on the nose, Adam. Uh, so <laughs> it took them a while, uh, but they're the finally end. there. Yes. They, they, it took them quite a while, but apparently they're quite there. So the European Commission is going to ban the use of Huawei stuff from like its own internal networks. But it's also uh, urging member states to uh, not use it. Yeah, we've seen them specifically targeting the like mobile equipment, 5G mobile networks. So the sort of conversations that we were having, you know, in the US and in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, a couple of years back now, maybe. Well, more You're, than a couple of years, man. It's been it's been going going on a while. Yes. Yeah. Um, so European Union does sometimes move a little slowly, but they yeah they've got there in the end, and you know I think understanding for them, you know, what it means to have your communications infrastructure operated by a third party. I was really pleased to see uh, part of the conversation was, like, it's not that there's backdoors, it's that it's controlled by someone else that we don't trust and they can make it do whatever they want. Like, And that was always one of my bugbears with this conversation earlier was the framing of backdoors like it was um, separate from the ownership of Huawei when, in fact, like, it doesn't matter if there's backdoors or not when they can update it remotely by virtue of their just support arrangements, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think the concern here, like just based on conversations I've had with various people, you know, uh, uh, close to the Australian government and whatnot, the, the concern here was really just that less that they were going to pop shell and more that they could just turn it off. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And when you look at, um, yeah, the way China's been behaving, uh, particularly since Xi has, has come to power, um, you know, it seems like quite a reasonable concern. You know, and these changes they've made to their espionage laws domestically, which basically make market research espionage. I don't, I don't think China <laughs> realizes the degree to which it just keeps shooting itself in its foot. Like it could have the global market for this stuff. It could be a world leader in 5G stuff, but, you know, just no. Yeah, I mean, they absolutely, they could control the world in a different way than yeah. than this, and they seem to have missed that at some point. We know whether that's ideological, whether that's something else, but, you know, they, I think history is going to look back at how China behaved here and probably judge them pretty harshly. And look, staying on the topic of, like, China risks, uh, we've got a great piece here from Andy Greenberg in Wired, uh, which looks at, uh, look, I'll read you the headline, it's how a shady Chinese firm's encryption chips got inside the US Navy, NATO, and NASA. And I, I actually really liked this story. Uh, because it makes the point that, okay, these chips could be compromised. I mean, it's my feeling that they're, they're most likely not compromised or backdoored in any way, but it's not really the point. The point is that there's just so much stuff washing around in our supply chains of you know, keeping, keeping track of the origins is hard. And, and the way this happened in this case is the company was Taiwanese, but has since been acquired by a mainland Chinese company uh, that's on the entities list, right? So now we've got this weird situation where there are chips supplied by a company on the US entities list actually in equipment used in sensitive places in the US government, right? 
Yeah, so this is uh, the company in question is called uh, Initio, and they make chips for doing encryption, uh, and which end up inside like encrypted drives that have built-in hard drives that have built-in encryption modules and that kind of thing. And um, yeah, the fact that they've been acquired by a Chinese vendor, uh, it just it's so very normal for this industry. Like understanding the relationship between the suppliers of all the various components and all your equipment is super complicated. And then even you know if we're dealing with like the reality of a threat to you know, encrypted hard drives in this case, you know, understanding how the key management works, what does the encryption, how it works, like all the flows is quite difficult. And uh, Andy talks to a, like a UK vendor that uses this equipment, but says the way that they do the key management in the drives means that they don't trust that component. So that's kind of like understanding how your hardware works, especially when it's not documented, it's difficult enough. Understanding the business relationships between the companies involved is also hard. Uh, and then even the entity list that we're talking about itself like that's a list that is meant to stop u.s companies exporting you know equipment that is potentially sensitive to chinese organizations and it's not really meant for use the other way around even though that is what is meant by it so like the whole framework is also confusing so combined together it does make you understand how you end up with um you know u.s entities not even sure if a a subsidiary like the parent company of a subsidiary being on the list means that they're in scope for it like it's all a bit of a mess it is a bit of a mess but i think it's uh, i i i find all of this very interesting because i don't think people quite realize the extent to which the entire global economy relies on supply chains that run into china yes so one of the things that really screwed up the auto industry were the lockdowns in china the covid lockdowns in china after the rest of the world had opened up China was still having these pretty aggressive lockdowns and the global auto industry couldn't get part supply from China. And, you know, it doesn't even need to be the sophisticated parts. Like it doesn't need to be that that we're talking about here. It can be stuff like plastic mouldings, headlight lenses. You know what I mean? The little, the little lens covers that cover the, the indicators on the side of the car. You know, everyone loves to talk about decoupling right? Oh, we're going to decouple from China. Good luck. You know, I, I saw some really interesting comments from some German auto executives at the time when people were asking them, like, how long would it take us to supply, to like pivot away from, uh, you know, reliance at all on, on Chinese parts. And they're like, well, it, it just can't be done. But, but when it comes to stuff like this, maybe they're the parts of the supply chain we need to focus on. Yeah, the bits sort of handling, you know, security related, security critical properties, like in this case, encryption uh, chips, like you can imagine those being a focus, but you know, if you're willing to to put backdoors in, or you're willing to modify or leverage the behavior of, you know, components of a system, like that's not always going to be clearly just security parts. Like there's all sorts of places where you're on the same bus or you're in the same device, or and it also depends on the effect you're trying to go for. It's if it's just to make a plane drop out of the sky, right? You can apply effect in all sorts of different places inside the system, not just in the obviously security critical parts. So it's that's a right. hell of a problem. Now, Adam, the widow uh, of Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist who was murdered by the Saudi Arabian government, uh, she's filed suit against NSO Group. Uh, She announced she was going to do this in September last year. We spoke about it at the time. She said she was going to sue the governments of the UAE and uh, and Saudi Arabia and also NSO Group for their role in putting – um, for their roles in putting uh, malware on her devices. And, uh, yeah, she's pulled the trigger on that suit. Yeah, I guess all of us who work in this industry must imagine what what it would be like 
you know, finding out that your devices had been compromised like that, and especially, you know, in, in something as serious as what happened to, you know, uh, to Jamal Khashoggi. So at some point, um, she was detained in the UAE. She was a flight attendant at the time, um, and her device, she was taken away for questioning, and her devices were infected at that point, according to the forensic records. So, like, she's making, you know, arguments about what that has done to her quality of life and how she feels about, you know, you know trusting the fabric of modern digital society so yeah interested to follow this and uh, see where it gets uh, for nso group now i spoke about this last week in seriously risky business with uh, tom uren which if you're not subscribed to that goes out through the risky business news rss feed not this podcast feed uh but uh, yeah i spoke briefly about this with tom last week but there's a new bill on the table in the united states called the protecting americans data from foreign surveillance act of 2023 and the idea is it would outlaw the sale of you know personal data um collected on americans through things like you know mobile app sdks and whatever it would prohibit the sale of that information to uh you know entities based offshore i mean cool right uh but as tom you know tom made the point that that's not you know it's not like the chinese mss turns up and says hi we're the chinese mss can we please buy some data (laughs) you know they can do this stuff with front companies and whatever and okay you're making them break another law that's great but really the solution to this is going to be better general um, uh, privacy regulations in the united states and maybe outlawing the collection of some of this stuff uh, if it doesn't have a purpose like just ban the collection of it yeah, and that was absolutely my feeling reading this. Like, good start, good place to go. You know, that's one easy way to sell it. But comprehensive privacy legislation inside the US, full stop, would prevent a bunch of this data existing in the first place. And that's really the right approach, even yeah. if this will, you know, it'll be a good start, perhaps. Now let's talk about, uh, what's this guy's name? Jonathan Manzi, oh, God. <laughs> 31. This is like some real galaxy brain stuff, i got to say. Wait, he's 31? Uh, Jeez, yeah. he writes like he's much younger than that. He writes anyway, like he's 17, on. I know. I yes. Know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this guy has been sentenced to prison for what he says is hacking back. And in fact, he has written an entire blog post about his sentencing, saying how unfair it is because he was hacking back, and that's an entirely justifiable thing. Uh, but, you know, them's the break, so he's, so he's off to prison. Basically what happened is an employee of his left to go work for a competitor. So he SIM swapped the employee's phone, got into their Gmail and then onwards uh, and wound up stealing a bunch of data from the uh, uh, competitor and like anonymously emailing it to that competitor's customers. Like, did you know that they're doing X, Y, Z? And this is what he's saying was hacking back. I mean, look, at 18 months, I reckon he got off light. Uh, yeah, what do you think? There's Alex? certainly a degree of deterrence that message that was meant to be sent here, but yeah, eighteen months doesn't seem particularly much uh, for for what he was doing here. And like the guy's blog post is just a little bit unhinged, right? It, it yeah. kind of starts off as a well, I did this, uh, and it was tit for tat, and you know they were asking for it, and then pivots into like a bunch of new age spirituality that he got after a spiritual event with a like homeless woman in San Francisco. That well, he ends, he ends at the subhead on the last section is today I embrace the outcome of my actions with love. <laughs> I mean, like if you were making a you know TV series or a movie about, you know, California tech startup culture, like you'd, you'd be like, oh, man, that's just too on the nose, right? <laughs> For the plot. Yeah, I but mean, he talks about the are. American dream and like it's just... 
Yeah, it's weird. It's really weird. Like the whole the whole blog post is a fever dream, and I'd yeah. recommend people actually read it just because it's so weird. It is so weird, but uh, well, I guess uh, I know he's going to spend some time in jail. He can perhaps find the new spiritual outlet uh, yeah. for his but, uh, uh, his hacking. You know, he's trying to talk about the you know the Active Cyber Defense Certainty Act, which was proposed to Congress. I don't think it was ever actually passed. Um, but this would have been the the hacking back, so called hacking back legislation. He's yeah, like, well, like the you know, cyber stand your ground. Yeah, <laughs> cyber stand your ground. I love it. Oh no. <laughs> um, but yeah. Anyway, real nutty stuff. Yeah. Go have a look at it. Uh, we've got a real interesting one here that Catalan turned up, uh, which is that a bunch of service members across the military. Uh, have been receiving smartwatches in the mail that they didn't buy, right? And when they've been turning these things on, apparently they are, they're pretty aggressively connecting to all of the Wi-Fi around them. And this alert from the Army Criminal Investigation Division says that it's like trying to exfiltrate data from from mobile devices and stuff, which, I don't know, might be true, feels a bit, feels a bit sus. What's interesting here is that they've said that what's likely happening here is people are doing false purchases, sending stuff to these service people so that they can leave like five-star reviews in their name. So it's probably not (laughs) like an espionage thing. I mean, it could be, but just what a world. Anyway, I got a link through to the to the Army Criminal Investigation Division notification on this and just it's it's a what, a, what, what in the world sort of thing. I mean, they do say like there's malware present which accesses both voice and cameras on the devices, which sounds pretty like that could go pretty badly wrong, but hopefully But it not, also sounds kind of made up. But it also sounds a little wild, yeah, like a little yeah. bit a little bit cray. Um so yeah, I guess the moral of the story is if you are an army service person and you have received one of these watches, uh, I think everyone would be quite interested to have a look at it in some more detail and oh, see what look they're at actually this. doing. I won a raffle and I've got a new Xiaomi phone. <laughs> <laughs> this is so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just log into all of my accounts. Um Now, uh, the FCC in the United States is spinning up a task force taking aim at data breaches and SIM swaps. So this is a telco industry task force, Adam. Take that, (laughs) T-Mobile. Like what? Let me just check what year. It's 2023. How long have we been SIM swapping for? A little bit slow there, FCC guys. But uh, yeah, I guess... Some kind of regulatory action against the American mobile operators is well overdue and uh, something that can make SIM swapping less of a problem. And as you say, like T-Mobile in particular has had a pretty rough, pretty rough few years um, with the high profile of SIM swapping crews and the other bad things, crypto thefts and swatting and whatever else. So time for some regulatory action, just a little bit late there. Yeah, I think the idea here is that they're just going to be able to levy massive fines against. And look, it's a blunt tool. I'm not getting too excited that they're going to solve you know all of the problems. But the idea that they can just come in and say you suck, here's a 200 million dollar fine. I mean, that is an incentive to improve your practices, right? <laughs> One would certainly hope so. I mean, 200 million dollars should buy you a buy you a little bit of security review, perhaps. But yeah, we we just have to wait and see whether they actually use these, whether the task force does some things, whether they use these powers, and whether they use them in a way that makes telcos, which are you know historically glacial at getting anything done, yeah. actually make some changes that are meaningful. I would think that some changes to sims like that would make sim swapping harder, wouldn't be all that difficult like if someone walks into a store and says i would like to you know i lost my phone why don't you pick up the phone and ring the number and see if anyone picks up <laughs> you know send them a message put a 24-hour hold on it send the phone a bunch of messages saying someone's trying to port your number 
you know, and if there's a disagreement, then we'll kick it up to a kick it up to a you know more advanced support team or something. I'm just saying, there's stuff that can be done here. Yeah, I mean, I will say that the telco ecosystem, you know, of third-party vendors and retailers and so on and so forth, like it is really complicated and yeah. does like making changes to that is difficult. But as you say, like there is surely there are some simple things that would make this you know, introduce some friction into this process. Yeah, I mean, the the crime ecosystem that all of this is supporting, yes. right? Like crypto theft and, you know, just general, uh, you know, underground crime ecosystem stuff. I think what's different is, to, to how it used to be back in the day, is the real world violence in yes. this scene, right? And, and Joe Cox actually has a story up for Vice Motherboard this week uh, that really looks at that angle of this this new, young, angry and violent uh, you know, cyber underground, Adam. Yeah, like he's got a write-up of a bunch of the sorts of like thuggery, I guess was the, the thing that came to my the word that came to mind for me, you know, of young people who've got a relatively straightforward, non-technical, you know, not very technical way to take over other people's phones and devices and onwards uh, from there and having that mixed in with crypto theft and money and drugs and, um, you know, other, you know, kind of underground stuff like that. Like it's not... It, you know, it's not the traditional hacker scene of the 90s anymore. Like this is, you know, just you know, thuggery being facilitated by relatively straightforward ways to take over people's phones and devices and all of the downstream consequences of lots of money, lots of violence, you know, communities like Discord communities where you can solicit crimes and, and laws and violence. Like it's a very different world than those of us who grew up hacking yeah. 20, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, no, no, it is it is very different. The the violence nexus stuff yes. is relatively new, you know. I mean, you used to hear stuff like someone who was involved in Russian cybercrime got whacked yeah. or someone got the crap beaten out of them because they did something wrong, stole some money from someone or whatever, right? But it wasn't like this. Like it wasn't the 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 bulk of the culture. Yeah, yeah, and and Joe's write up really is it's pretty grim reading to be honest, you know, when you yeah. see um and, and, and seeing the tie-ins between, you know, youth communities, or, you know, Minecraft players or Call of Duty players and the easy on-ramp into doing this this kind of crime from those communities. Yeah. Um, but then also, like, some of the off-ramps, right, where it rel- doesn't take much friction to push, you know, a young person out of this environment back into a, you know, a more productive path in life. I think one thing, though, that's interesting here is that sim swapping is at the centre of yes. a lot of this stuff, right? So... You know, there's a case to be made that the telcos need to tackle this, not just for the, you know, not just for some idea about cybersecurity, uh, but because it's actually, their, their insecurity, their crappy job here is resulting in, in real world harms. I remember the first time I heard about SIM swapping, the first case I could really think of, it was actually in South Africa, uh, where someone did a SIM swap on a, uh, on a mobile so that they could do an SMS-based auth, and I think they ran away with like 60 grand. And, you know, I just even remember thinking then, okay, well, that's going to happen more. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and that was quite a long time ago now. And it's just the lack of action in, in the United States is just, yeah, mind-boggling. You'd even think, like, you look at uh, apps like WhatsApp and Signal, how you can set up pins where if someone SIM swaps you, unless they have your pin, they can't activate your service. What's to stop telcos from doing something you know, similar. And of course, there's going to be people who forget their pin. You know, of course, there's going to be some friction for stuff. But I guess what I'm getting at is that is that sim swapping isn't an insurmountable problem. They're just not trying. Yeah. And I mean, sim swapping is a thing that, you know, we could have done at any point in the mobile world's history since GSM, but it's only become relevant now. And what 
what it means to society, you know, on a more broad sense, is not a thing that the telcos have kept up with. Like their role as a key part of the security ecosystem in the overall, you know, kind of modern world is not a thing that telcos have ever really taken on board or spent appropriately. Well, there was the line that I used to use 10 years ago, Adam, which is all you're doing is transferring the risk from your help desk onto your mobile, you know, your your employee's (laughs) mobile uh, mobile carrier's help desk, right? So you think you're improving things. Um, Maybe not so much. Um, And, you know, uptake on stuff like, look, pass keys is going to help here. Absolutely, pass keys will help. I mean, yeah, but it just frustrates me because a lot more could be happening uh, and and it's just not. Yeah, I mean, anything that ends up being in the realm of the telco to solve, like they're, you know, they are not organizations that are that love change and move nimbly. So it's about. Well, let's hope the FCC task force is like <laughs> Oprah, uh, but giving away fines instead of cars. Yes, exactly. You, know, exactly. you get a fine, and you get a fine, and everyone gets a fine. <laughs> let's hope that happens. Now, look, staying with weird law enforcement news too. Like, I should, I probably should have put this with the the, the <laughs> hackback guy. Uh, but, you know, you will double take when you hear this. Russian national arrested and charged with conspiring to commit lockbit ransomware attacks against U.S. and foreign businesses. That is the heading of the Department of Justice release. He was arrested in the United States. Yeah. like, <laughs> What are you doing, buddy? Why? What are you doing? That's just the yeah. wrong place to be a Russian cyber criminal. If you want to be a Russian cyber criminal, go to Russia yeah, where you're not going to get arrested and indicted. Yeah, I mean, this guy was actually living in the US. <laughs> I mean, what were you thinking? Oh, dear. He was thinking he had great OPSEC, and yeah, he was probably. wrong, I yes. think, is, uh, is right. Now, look, staying on, on that, and this is our last item for the week, uh, I'm going to link through to this in, in this week's show notes. Brian Krebs has an absolutely terrific post up on Mastodon. And I'll read it to you. It says, ha ha, love it when a data ransom dump of a public utility extorted by Klopp ends up providing a pivotal identifier for a top cyber criminal who just happened to live in the area served by the utility, <laughs> been stuck on this research forever until Klopp posted a recent trove. Hashtag, thanks Klopp. <laughs> <laughs> and that right there illustrates why OPSEC is so hard. Like, yeah. would you have had at some point in the future... Russian cyber criminals will steal data and release it, dump it, uh, and then that's the thing that ruins your OPSEC. But what's crazy is like this is how a lot of the the, the OSINT on yes. Russian cyber criminals yes. works is because this sort of stuff has been stolen in Russia, available in torrents and stuff, <laughs> and now we're getting the same stuff. But uh, yeah, there, there is some pretty thick irony here yes. um, that, that Klopp is now inadvertently doxing its mates. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly a wonderful time to be an you know open source intel person or investigator or you know i imagine the law enforcement also enjoy this kind of thing very much where they don't have to go through the process of getting a warrant and raiding someone's data center when it just shows up in a torrent and uh, you can help yourself and uh, onwards uh, goes the investigation well it, it it looks like some cyber criminal is about to get their uh their their brian krebs Doc's wings, you know? <laughs> Every time Klopp posts yeah. something like this, this, someone gets their, their Doc's wings, like a, little, like a little angel, a little fairy. Uh, yeah, wonderful one for work there, Brian. Yeah, yeah, and very funny post. Um, yes. All right, Adam, that is actually it uh, for the week's news. Thank you very much for joining me. And, of course, we're not doing shows for the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're kind of taking – you know, I always say I'm having time off – uh, in quote marks, because of course I'll still be editing uh, our, our three times a week news scripts and working with Tom <laughs> on Seriously Risky Business, but we're off air for a couple of weeks. Uh, but yeah, we'll be back in three weeks. 
Yeah, and I will uh, talk to you then, Pat. And there'll, I'm sure there'll be. There's always going to be a million things to talk about, but there's just an extra special chance. Uh, yeah. when, when you go uh, on leave from the main show, Cybergeddon is coming. Cybergeddon. Uh, so brace yourselves. <laughs> That was CyberCX's Adam Boileau uh, with a chat about the week's security news. And it's time for this week's sponsor interview now. And uh, yeah, this week's show is brought to you by Material Security. And uh, they make a product that basically lets you vault all of your employees' email, like their cloud email, 0365 and Google Workspace and whatnot. And, uh, you know, if your employees want to go back and pull up an email from last year, they might have to do something like go do a step-up authentication using MFA. And this is a really handy thing uh, if an attacker gets access to an employee mailbox somehow, right? Uh, It's also useful in the case of insider threats. uh, And there's just a bunch of really interesting use cases that stem from having uh, a vault containing all of your your employees' cloud email. So if that's something you want to know more about, head over to material.security and have a read. Uh, But in this sponsor interview, we're going to hear from uh, Material Security's product manager, Matt Muller, and Coinbase's Courtney Healy. uh, And we're all talking about insider threats. So Courtney is here with a simple message. DLP doth not an insider threat program make. And here she is to kick off the discussion. I would argue that there's been a lot of insider threat programs that have become DLP programs, but these are fundamentally different. You're talking about data loss prevention is stopping data from moving somewhere. And yes, that might be the goal of a lot of the threat actors, but the threat actors and insider threat, depending on how you define that, is very wide and they can materialize in very different ways. How a fraudster is going to approach stealing information or monies, vice how somebody committing espionage, IT sabotage, these are all very different. So this idea that you can have a tool only as and consider it an insider threat program, I would just say is in error. So I guess you're not saying DLP is useless, just that it's not a, not going to give you complete coverage against insider threat, which I think, you know, that's probably like, you know, a sensible thing to say, right? Absolutely. It is a tool in the toolbox. Uh, however, it is not the only tool in the toolbox, and it certainly won't uh, protect you if you think you're going to just implement any tool, turn it on and forget about it. That is certainly not going to protect you from a true malicious insider. So how do you protect yourself from a true malicious insider? Because, I'm, you know, it's one of the hardest problems, right? Like it is one of those last remaining great, great challenges uh, in InfoSec. I mean, there are, there are many difficult challenges in InfoSec, but these days they have solutions, even if they're like often crazy expensive or really difficult to do, like there is at least a path towards getting there. But, you know, what, what, what's the solution here for insider threat? Because, you know, there, there are some things that just make it inherently unsolvable, I guess. So solvable is a different term. I wouldn't say you can always catch everything, of course, but I honestly do think that this is a place for cross-functional information and for building teams that have not just the technological experience, the ideas and the foundational security apparatus and knowledge, but also need to have that background for culture, for HR, interfacing with legal. I think it's actually a place where that multidisciplinary approach is really what is needed because a lot of your technical indicators are indicators, but the context isn't necessarily something you're going to get from the tool in this case, like you would in other scenarios. You might get that context from your HR partner, from the manager, from um, a legal scenario that you're looking at. Uh, There's just a lot of various pieces that can 
come and interplay in this space. So it's really so, an opportunity So you need like a, like a, a Stasi style insight into, uh, into your employees. Is this kind of <laughs> what we're talking about? Like a, you know, roll like the North Koreans? <laughs> I definitely would not make that comparison, <laughs> but I would certainly <laughs> say that, you know, the strongest insider threat programs I've seen in the space are very multidisciplinary because they come from all kinds of backgrounds and different lines of thought. You don't want just one type of security practitioner here. You want people who come from all kinds of spaces, some that come from big corporate, some that might come from government, some that come from a mindset of let everything be free and open, and some that come from a zero trust. Having those different perspectives all bouncing against each other is what actually helps you find a true insider threat. So so walk us through what that actually looks like, right? Because it's great to say, hey, you know, this needs to be a multidisciplinary thing. Different people need to be involved. But like, what are they doing and what are, they, what are you hoping to catch with these, these people from many different backgrounds? Absolutely. Well, first we have to define what we're looking for. And I think that's the biggest piece of this whole puzzle, right? For insider threats, in my worldview, you're looking at everything from intellectual property theft to financial crimes and fraud to espionage to IT sabotage. Okay, those are all very different disciplines. So when you're building a team for this, you want people who are coming from those different disciplines. That- so yeah, you want a, you want a fraud person thinking about how a malicious insider might do fraud stuff. You might want some ex FBI person thinking about the espionage stuff, like that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Having the skill sets and the experiential different uh, differences among a team, the diversity really plays out in a positive way here. You do not want a bunch of like-minded people. In fact, if possible, you want people who are going to argue against each other because insider threat is a very unclear space. And you're talking about a gray area where somebody might interpret something somebody did as completely okay. And another person might say, oh my gosh, this could be a huge threat. What do we do? What do we not know that they're doing? Yeah, so I guess what you're saying is these people can help to identify the risks in the first place and then can interpret stuff as it happens and have a good instinct for whether something is is bad or not. Absolutely. And also, frankly, bring that human component to it. You know, again, as technologists, a lot of us default to wanting tools to tell us all of the pieces of the puzzle. Uh, in mm. insider threat, that is simply just not something that is feasible. You need to have that human context for what pressures are being exerted on this person, what parameters are being set what is the business asking them to do that they need to do quickly and how are they trying to solution it because 99 percent of the time people are trying to do the right thing and you have to be able to contextualize that to find the one percent that is not yeah okay so like I, i guess you're alluding to sort of inadvertent insider threat right people doing the wrong things by accident you know, that is certainly not to be discounted. That's a very large percentage of the real insider threat damages that companies experience yeah. on the daily. Uh, but that being said, that's almost a different scenario entirely than the person who is, for whatever reason, either came into the company with intent to harm or, frankly, I mean, I mean turned and, and it feels like it's a problem that's more addressable these days, right? Because it, it really was that sort of inadvertent loss. There were two things. There was the laptop left in the taxi, right? That was a big one. And, um, you know, full disk encryption has largely mitigated that because uh, that's something that is easy to roll out through corporate policy and whatever. And the other thing was like companies not giving their employees access to stuff like, you know, cloud-based storage so that they could take their work home. So they were always using their personal Dropboxes and stuff and those accounts were getting owned and, you know, that was that was turning into a bad time. So, yeah, it certainly feels like it's easier now to help employees to do the right thing. Easier, but also in some ways more difficult um, because we also have employees who are incredibly savvy with new technologies all of the time 
and can very easily not be aware. And that's the key piece, too. I honestly feel like that's a, a piece that is often missing from the technologies when we implement rules is explaining the why. Because if somebody's trying to do their job, they're just trying to do their job. If they don't, yeah, telling, telling them don't, not to do something isn't enough, right? You got to tell it's them. It's not why. exactly. You have to explain mm. the why because they will be a force multiplier if they understand what you're trying to protect them from. Now, okay, you've explained that a lot of this stuff is about having the right talent, you know, and and the right thinking. Can you think of any sort of and and, and you've said that DLP is not, you know, uh, God, what do we call it? The the silver bullet. I hate the term, but you know, fair enough, right? Not a silver bullet. Um. But what are some basic technical controls that people should be thinking of when they're first starting to think about addressing the insider threat in earnest, right? So I'm guessing DLP is going to be one of them. What's another one that's maybe less obvious? So the, honestly, the less obvious is actually more obvious than you would expect. And it's what I like to explain to people as like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs for an insider threat program. You put insider threat at the very top. Because what it needs is it needs all those logging solutions. It needs all the access controls. It needs all of these very basic things that everybody knows is needed. But you can't actually have a functional insider threat program without all of those tools interoperating in a way that you have a clear visibility and a good picture and kind of single pane of glass perspective of what's going on in your environment. And incidentally, you need to know what your entire environment is which sounds easy enough, but for a lot of spaces that grow rapidly, that's a challenge unto itself. I mean, this is going back to the prevention versus detection stuff too, like the prevention versus detection debate. And I guess DLP is about preventing, you know, the most egregious stuff. But yeah, you definitely want logging when people start doing suspicious things with data that they actually have legitimate access to, right? And I think, yeah, you're right. Like it is blindingly obvious, but it's amazing how many people don't think to log that stuff. Absolutely. Or frankly, anomalous behavior, because, you know, for an insider threat, a lot of times people are, when they're looking for threats, they're looking for something that is unusual. Well, you can't do that with an insider threat. Their inherent ability is the fact that what they're doing is part of their usual job. It's mm-hmm. something they inherently have access and opportunity to execute. So if you're looking for something that isn't what they normally do daily, well, you probably missed it if they were an insider. So you have to find what's an anomalous. You have to find what is out of character for this person. Now, of course, you're doing this interview in a material security uh, uh, sponsor interview, right? So I'm guessing you're a customer of theirs. I imagine that, well, you know, it's blindingly obvious that this is a solution that would be useful uh, uh, in addressing certain aspects of the insider threat, right? Because you're locking away uh, uh, your employees' inboxes and if they want to go back and retrieve a year-old email or whatever, they have to do a step-up auth. I'm guessing that was part of the case, Uh, for actually getting material in the first place, right? So material certainly offers a lot of controls for insider threats, um, as it does for um, non-insider threats, candidly. A lot of the tools in the space that you're going to want can do a hat for anything from a critical incident response team scenario, being able to search and find these information, being able to neutralize somebody's capabilities, being able to actually, you know, put more granularity on those controls is something that that tool certainly offers and um, is very helpful. Now, Matt Muller uh, is uh, from Material Security, and he's been with us this whole time, sitting there waiting very, very patiently um, uh, for me to ask him a question, actually. But Matt, I guess my question is, uh, from a you know, Material Security perspective is, you know, of your customers, you know, how much of a selling point is it that this stuff, that your tech can be used to address insider threat? Because I'd imagine it's probably just what Courtney said, which is it's, you know, 
it's just generally a sort of foundational infosec thing that has applications to insider threat and and elsewhere but i'm just wondering you know of the customers who buy it how many of them sort of mentioned that that's it's you know a big part of its use case a fair number and i think you know one of the uh one of the things about you know materials uh data protection product um is that it makes access to information provable right somebody had to do a step up off um and when you're thinking about the difference between an individual that you know oh may have made a mistake and accidentally shared something with a personal gmail account versus you know intentionally trying to do something that is where you're able to demonstrate intent a little bit more effectively right you had to go through multiple steps uh and and that helps build a case it, it's not necessarily dispositive but it's certainly helpful for saying here's a building block that demonstrates somebody maybe act, acting as a malicious insider yeah yeah, that intent piece, you know, what Matt is saying is absolutely true with intent. And being able to prove intent is a very important thing when it comes to actually addressing something with an in, with a potential insider, because you certainly don't want to be out penalizing or being the, the big bad security apparatus who's knocking on doors saying you messed up. People need to have bandwidth to beat mistakes. But that being said, security teams need to be able to demonstrate, no, actually, you had that opportunity to correct this action and you did this intentionally. Well, I mean, there's different thresholds there as well, right? There's the threshold for HR. Is in. There's a threshold for please explain. There's a threshold for you're fired. And then there's a threshold for we're calling the FBI. Absolutely. And, and those are very wide and differing thresholds, frankly, depending on all different types of corporate environments. You know, each company sets its own risk appetite. And that in and of itself is something that gets very um, mature and differs depending on the size, depending on the type of data the company is using and interacting with. So it's very personal to any corporation what that risk appetite is and what those thresholds are for, for, for meeting those standards. So, Matt, uh, we were talking earlier and, uh, you know, you, one thing you wanted me to ask is what are some of the steps that, you know, smaller security teams can take to start building inside a threat programs, like simple things that people uh, uh, can do to build insider threat programs, technically, or technical controls they can use. Um, you know, you've got some ideas there that you wanted to share, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of it can be done, quite frankly, with the the existing logging and audit trails that that folks have in their systems, right? Um, just having that, that history of what your employees have done is super, super valuable. Um, you know, being able to build on top of that um, make access, uh, you know, deliberate, right? Uh, if you have all of your sensitive uh, data in Google Docs, do you just share that broadly with everybody or do you explicitly share with the people who need to know that information? Um, are you able to make, you know, access to sensitive information a provable event? Uh, one of the things that, you know, that Material does. Um, and quite frankly, checking in with your folks, uh, you know, when and saying, hey, I saw you access this thing, right? Like, can I just double click on that? Uh, it really, you know, gives people the impression that the security team is out there, right? And is looking at things. Um, and I think one of the signs of success there is when folks start proactively coming to you and saying, oh my goodness, you know, I opened this document. I didn't realize that this was full of sensitive content. Just so you know, I'm bringing this mm. to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Courtney Healy, Matt Muller, thank you so much for joining us uh, to have a bit of a chat about uh, Insider Threat. Very interesting stuff. Cheers. Thank you. Have a great evening. Thank you so much. 
That was Courtney Healy and Matt Muller there. Big thanks to Material Security for being this week's show sponsor, and you can find them at material.security. But that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow uh, with another episode of the Seriously Risky Business podcast that I do every week with Tom Uren. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thank you.